Well, it's good to have Larry up there because, as you know, Larry and I have um, traded many stories in the past, and uh, there's just one more that I'd like to share with you. It appears that there was a very elite party going on in Beverly Hills, and there was three professionals that were attending. There was a, sur- there was a surgeon, there was an engineer, and there was an attorney. And they were standing at the bar enjoying a martini, and each one was successful, well-known, and respected in his field. Well, as the party proceeded and the drinks flowed, they became involved in an intense conversation. Philosophical issues arose, and soon they were debating what God's profession was when he created the planet Earth. The surgeon spoke first. He said, you know, life only began, truly began, after Eve was formed, and she was made when God removed one of Adam's ribs. And as you realize, that was a surgical procedure. And uh, why an engineer, an attorney, couldn't have done anything like that, and life never really began if God had not removed that rib surgically. So therefore, God had to be a surgeon. The engineer said, well, that's a good point, my friend. Very good. He said, but the thing is, God had to be able to take and create the actual world out of chaos. And only an engineer could take something that was chaotic and make it function into something that we see around us today. The attorney smiled and said, oh, wait, wait, but we're forgetting one important fact. Who do you think caused all the chaos? <laughs> How can you argue with logic like that, huh? You know, and, and speaking of chaos, this whole series that we've been doing on the moral decline of our nation really represents chaos in its worst form. You know, if you look around us and you see what's going on in the, in, the, um, in the times in which we find ourselves, one other thing, and probably an area that there's more chaos and confusion than any other area, is in the area of sexual morality. Me or the overhead? Oh, okay. I just want to make sure. Hang on a second. Well, I can only go so far here. Oh, I don't know. Well, that's it. All right. Hey, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Okay, anyway, where were we? Chaos. We're talking about chaos and confusion is what we're talking about. You know, if you stop and think about the area of sexual morality, there's probably more confusion and more chaos that's being advocated than anything else that I can think of. And in a society that patience or delaying gratification is such a foreign concept in a microwave age, you can understand what some of the problems are. And it's, therefore, it's more important or it's as important as it's ever been in the history of our nation to make sure that we get back to sound biblical instruction when it comes to understanding sexual behavior, sexual morals, and teaching not only Christians what God's absolute moral standards are, but to make sure that we share with the world that we come in contact with how dangerous some of the other philosophies are that are being espoused as being whatever, whether it's safe sex, quote-unquote, education or not. And uh, therefore, it becomes extremely critical because this is a very relevant issue. This, these are some of the headlines just this past week. This was on Thursday, June 2nd, 1994. The, the, uh, the headlines are, Girl Scouts Urged to Admit Lesbians. Once again, our Chief Surgeon General has something profound to say on this particular subject. 
Surgeon General Jocelyn Elder said lesbians should be allowed to join the Girl Scouts and politicians shouldn't worry, quote, about anyone's bedroom but their own, end quote. I feel that sexuality is up to the individual, is what she said in an interview with USA Weekend magazine. Earlier, she had given an interview to The Advocate, which is a gay newspaper, in which she said sex was for pleasure, not just procreation, and urged that the Boy Scouts admit homosexuals. This is the kicker, quote, What goes on in someone's bedroom is really none of my business. I don't feel that policymakers and decision makers should worry about anyone's bedroom but their own. It's none of her business. She's the chief health official for the United States of America, and she says what goes on in bedrooms is none of her business. But she doesn't really mean what she says. Because what she's saying is what goes on in other people's bedrooms is none of our business to question her as to what she believes is her business and what she advocates. And I'll tell you why. Anyone that opposes anything that she says, it's none of our business. But it certainly is her business because sexually transmitted diseases fall under her jurisdiction as far as a health issue in our country. Unwanted teen pregnancy falls under her jurisdiction. Even the whole abortion issue falls under her jurisdiction. And I'll tell you why. Because this past week she went to Capitol Hill and asked that the only government program that funds abstinence education be zero funded. The Office of Adolescent Family Life gets $6.8 million a year to promote adoption and abstinence. She has gone to this particular committee and asked that it is no longer funded because she says the president wants to use those funds for, quote, teen health. It's fascinating. What's fascinating about it is that we've got a, a budget of countless billions of dollars, and that's the only area that's been singled out. But it's none of her business what goes on. Now, what she's saying is it's none of our business to challenge her as to what she's promoting. And she, is, she has openly professed that she is the self-professed condom queen. And in her office in the state of Arkansas, on her desk, she had what she called a rubber tree, ha-ha, and on it was hanging condoms, and that was a joke that she made about the whole situation. She is promoting something that we need to understand what the Bible has to say. Another survey... Wednesday, May 18, 1994, 36% of teenagers engage in sexual activity. Now, there's a lot of good news in this survey, and there's some bad news, and we need to point, pick out what's good and what's bad. First, it says a little over one-third of high school students say they are sexually active, which is down from 54% reported in 1990. There's some good news. The bad news is, of those who are sexually active, 72% of them say they have sex in their own homes. That's bad news. Of the 36% who said they had intercourse, 80% that they use condoms all or most of the time, and 75% say they use birth control. Now, this would be an interesting question to ask. Is it good news or bad news? Don't say anything, because I don't want you embarrassing yourself now. That's my responsibility. <clears throat> the... Me <laughs> The mean number of sexual partners was 3.2. Okay. The average age reported for first having intercourse was 15 among all teenagers, but a majority, 54%, said that they wished they had waited until they were older to start having sex. Bad news, kind of good news, really bad news, because what's older? 16? 15 and a half? 
I mean, I, you know, I, I don't understand, but whatever. It says, responding to the Just Say No campaign that was launched by the Reagan administration to try to discourage teen sexual activity and drug use, nearly two-thirds said that it was not effective. 91% supported sex education in schools, and 67% supported condom distribution in schools. A lot of bad news there. I got a great pamphlet recently from a guy named Joe McElhaney, who's a doctor, who wrote in this pamphlet, Why Condoms Are Not Safe. It's a fascinating study. Research has been done. It's not coming from necessarily a biblical or Christian point of view. It's stating medical facts about the use of condoms. And he says, despite the fact that individuals use condoms, there's still many, many, many reported incidents of trans sexually transmitted diseases for a number of reasons. He says, you want to get pregnant? Use a condom. And I want you to listen to this. It says, giving out condoms encourages more students to become sexually active because they, are believed, they believe the devices will make, safe, make sex safe. It says, the sad fact is, however, these students are misinformed. Scientific data has been available for years proving that condoms are less than effective in, pre in preventing pregnancy. In one study by promoters of condom use, more than 13% of unmarried white teenagers became pregnant in the first year that they used condoms for contraception. Among non-white unmarried girls, the, the comparable figure was 22%. These numbers are even more significant when you remember that a woman can get pregnant only two or three days each month. He goes on to say, you want to die? Use a condom. Because if you can get pregnant only two to three days in a given month, you can get a sexually transmitted disease any day of the month. Sexually transmitted diseases can occur every time that you have sex. And the germs that cause sexually transmitted diseases are much smaller than that of sperm. The diameter of the virus, for example, that causes AIDS is 1 25th the diameter of sperm. You want to become infertile? Condom sex can do that for you, too. And it goes on and on. But the interesting thing is, a gal named uh, uh, Ruth Smith writes, Beyond the physical scarring that can come from approaching sex in this way, patients suffer even more from emotional scars. These kids are getting burned. The result of all of it is broken hearts, broken relationships, a sense of vulnerability, frustration, and depression. I'm not being judgmental here. I'm just stating a fact. The students that I see feel ripped off. The guys get mad. The girls sit there and cry. But the most common result is the feeling that nobody can be trusted. Condoms are handed out around here left and right, but there isn't a condom in the world that can take care of the emotional scars that are left on the mind. Interesting. Well, you know what? That's enough background information because that's not really here what we're to discuss. The thing that, I'm, that I, I'm, I want to focus on, the thing that concerns me greatly, is that despite all of this information, I have had conversations with Christian men and women that think that it is in their daughter or son's best interest for them to provide contraceptives for them. And, and the reason they give is it's the old damage control theory. They say, well, but Chuck, wait a minute. We're not encouraging this, but, you know, kids are kids. And we've got to protect them. What's the message yet? We're not encouraging them, but kids are kids, so therefore we need to protect them. Okay. 
I've talked to Christians who justify living together. I've talked to Christians who justify having sex outside their marriage. I've talked to Christians who justify that are single having sex, period. I talk to Christians that promote sex education programs that do not advocate abstinence as if somehow providing some form of community service or showing how open-minded we really are. And then you ask yourself the question, why is it that Christians find themselves adapting to the cultural pressures of our time? And there's really two answers, or two things that, that, that I believe are true. One is, because it's always easier to go with the flow. It's always easier to swim downstream than it is to swim upstream. And when we're bombarded on all sides by these types of arguments, and we don't have the time, when we don't make the time to check into the facts to find out what in the world is being promoted, it's easier to just go with the flow. And one thing that Steve Farrar said this morning, he's mentioned in some of his books, and which is very true, that is simply this. As Christians, we are never going to be going with the flow. I mean, think about it. The, the Word of God doesn't go with the flow. The Word of God does everything in God's power to stop the flow that's going in the wrong direction and redirect it to a right direction. But the majority of the people in our world will continue to just go against God's flow and go on their own. And as Christians, we're always going to be swimming upstream. The second thing is, is that I don't think that we have a real solid biblical basis for why we should be opposing some of the things that we hear. We don't know what we believe. We don't know what the Bible teaches. I'm more and more convinced of that. We don't know what God has to say. It's easier to listen to the news and read the newspaper and believe people that come and tell us this is what we're going to teach. Do you find anything wrong with it? Well, yeah, if you know what the Bible teaches, I can find some stuff wrong with it very easily. Do you think, is there anything wrong with a parent providing contraceptives for their kids? I can't believe that we're so duped into this that we don't even see a problem there. I can't believe this. And yet I know it happens all the time. So the purpose of the Word of God, since it's inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, is to be able to correct our wrong thinking in the area of sexual morality and to clearly understand what God has to say. And there's two things that you can't miss as you study the Scripture. Number one is that God clearly condemns extramarital sex, first of all. One of the oldest commandments, very simply, was, Thou shalt not commit adultery can't get around it. Don't have to dig into the Hebrew words there. I mean, it makes a whole bunch of sense. That's what it says and that God means it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We went into that in great detail. The second thing that God also prohibits is premarital or sex outside of marriage. And it really is simple. And, re and it, we wouldn't have to really study anything else, but I've got a whole bunch of stuff that I think that you'll want to know, so we're going to, so don't think we're getting out early. So listen, the point is, that sums it all up. It really does. It sums it all up. It's, it's everything you need to know about what the Bible teaches about sexual behavior is summed up in, the, in these two things. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. And also, any sex outside of marriage is wrong also. From the standpoint that if you're single, you know, and what's amazing to me, if you think about it, society opposes sex primarily on the grounds of all the dangerous things. 
pregnancy, disease, uh, even, you know, even the doctor, emotional damage, kids aren't ready, they're not mature enough, they're not responsible enough to handle. And, we, and those, are the opposite, those are the opposing viewpoints, for the most part, of what we tried to adopt. But in reality, in a nutshell, what it boils down to is this. God has moral absolutes that are as real as the physical absolutes of the universe in which we live in. They're non-negotiable. It's not a matter of us trying to decide or pick and choose what's right or wrong. God clearly tells us what's right or wrong. So what we've got to do is we'll take a look at a couple things. But for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Apostle Paul writes this. Flee from immorality. Run from it. The greatest example that's found in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Where there's a man whose name was Joseph and he was in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife came to him and said, hey, you're a good looking guy. What do you think? Come on up here on the bed with me. And you know what Joe said? I can't do that. Why? Because it's a sin against God, and because I couldn't do it to my master, who's your husband, I couldn't do that to him. And literally, he got up and he ran. Not a bad, not a bad advice, not bad advice to give. Get out of there. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. You're going to damage yourself. Turn with me in the book of Proverbs and see what uh, that Solomon writes about the whole subject. Proverbs Chapter 5. Proverbs 5. In 1 Thessalonians, we read this. This is the will of God. Everyone's always struggling. What's God's will? What's God? Well, here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fleshly immoralities. That you abstain from immorality. In Proverbs chapter 5, we read the same thing as it, as it, um, as it relates to extramarital sex. Proverbs 5, look at verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Ah, it all sounds so good. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death, and her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not even know it. You know, what's so sad about it is, is that sin is pictured all throughout the Bible as something that's very deceptive. It confuses us. It brings chaos into our life. It, it, it is referred to as darkness. We can't comprehend it. And therefore, the worst situation to be in is to be a person who is in the midst of behavior that God calls sin because what's going to happen is you don't know what's right or wrong. You don't know what's up or down. You don't know what's left or right. You're so messed up, you don't even see it. It's like trying to talk to somebody who's got a drug or alcohol problem, and that's why they've got these intervention and counter things that you get a whole bunch of people to circle you and say, look, you got a problem. Why do you have to do that? Because they don't see it. That's what God's Word does. It says, listen, Chuck, if you're doing this, you got a problem. You can't see it. I'm pointing it out to you. And he goes on and says, you know what? Her ways are so unstable, she doesn't even know it. She doesn't even know she has a problem. He says, now listen to me. Listen, listen to me. And don't depart from the words of my mouth. You keep her as far away from you as you possibly can. You don't go near the door of her house. Lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien. You know, what a picture of, of a, of a modern-day adulterous relationship. All the energy, all of the time, all of the money, all of the gifts, all of the stuff 
that a guy or a gal or particularly men, they stop doing with their wives. They stop spending time with their wives. They stop dating their wives. They stop buying their wives presents because they got this little cutie over here and they're spending time with her. They're buying her stuff. They're giving her things. He's too tired by the time he gets home. So he continues to ignore his family. And whoa, you tell me the Bible's not relevant. You tell me that God doesn't know what's going on. He says, man, you know what? Your hard-earned goods are going to go to her and you're going to groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. What an interesting uh, uh, statement as far as physical disease is concerned. Your body, your flesh is consumed. And then you'll say, oh man, I should have listened up. I hated instruction. I didn't want to hear it. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers. I haven't inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. There's spiritual defeat. Tell me we can't identify with that. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Interesting, 1 Corinthians 7 has the same idea where it says that, you know what? Every woman is to have her own husband. Every man is to have his own wife. And he goes on and says, Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. There it is again. God's idea of sexual behavior is to be confined within within a, 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 a marital situation. It says, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, hey, 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 I don't have a problem there. No, not, not married, faithful. Whew. Oh, man, <laughs> missed me there. Oh, good. Okay. Well, and that's true. Well, now let's go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Because you say, well, you know what, though? But I'm single. I'm not married. Please don't tell me there's something in the Bible that says I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Well, you came to the wrong place. Because in Hebrews 13, 4, and you know what, though? You really didn't. You know what's amazing to me? And this is, I love how God deals with, with our lives. It's like I've had more people come up to me over the years that I've taught, and they've asked this question. Did someone tell you what I'm doing? <laughs> I had all the time. It's hilarious. Did someone, did, did someone tell you what I'm doing? No. Why? Well, because what you, what, what you were teaching, is, I mean, it's right there. Oh, you know why? Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's able to separate the bone from the marrow. And it goes on and says this. And you know why? Because nothing is hidden from the sight of God. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God to whom we have to do, meaning that God judges every one of us. God sees everything that we do. It's not me. It's not somebody telling me. It's not somebody telling anybody else. And when the Word of God is preached, the Spirit of God goes out and says, You are guilty. What are you going to do about it? Hebrews 13.4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators, those are people that are single having sex, and adulterers, those are people who are married that are having sex with somebody other than their spouse. Listen, God will judge. 
Now, see, this is what frightens me about all the safe sex education nonsense. How is a condom going to protect anyone from the judgment of God? Are we idiotic or what? I mean, think about it. And you know what the answer to the problem with condoms is now? Well, the oh, oh, this is great. My wife went to, um, Linda went to uh, junior high school. Was it junior high school? Yeah, it was. It was junior high school. Um, they were having a, a safe sex or sex education class, so she wanted to hear what was being said. You know, and the gal did a real good presentation of explaining the dangers of condoms, explaining the dangers of having sex, you know, outside of marriage, you know, that type of thing. And, but yet, you know, they, they dance around the issue of whether it's right or wrong. They just kind of try to, you know, scare kids into not doing things, right? And, um, and there's always, you know, there's always one or two kids in every class when they have questions and answer time. You know, and she and, and she said that the gal was explaining the danger of condoms and how they break and how they tear and how you know the, the uh, sexually transmitted diseases are a lot smaller than sperm and showed a pinhead and here's how small they are and you know a little tear this kind of thing whatever and so you know typical the way we think you know the kids stood up in the back question time said well are they doing anything to make condoms any better that that's that, that's how we think but you know what that same philosophy isn't limited to someone in seventh grade because we've got genius research scientists all across the country who are being given tons and tons of taxpayer money to come up with, you know, the impenetrable condom. I mean, think about this. But what in the world are we going to do? I mean, it's like, oh, oh, God, I can just see God. He's shaking in his boots over that one. Um, you know, and that, and he's wearing boots just to please, you know, all the country western fans. But, um, you know, but, you know, I'm sure he's really concerned about man coming up with some impenetrable condom. God says this. Don't be deceived, folks. You can't mock me. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And if I say it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't care what kind of pills you come up with. I don't care what kind of steel-plated, armor-plated condom that you come up with. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me because you're doing something I say is wrong. It's not a problem for me to continue to judge you for what you do. Just thought I'd let you know. And so as Christians, what becomes very critical is that we understand that it's imperative that we realize that sexual sin never just happens. I don't know anybody that's ever just, they wake up one day and say, it's a nice day today, I think I'll have an affair. I don't know anybody that does that. I don't know anybody that wakes up that's single and says, man, I think I'm going to go have some sex today. Nobody does that. And the reason for it is that there's always pre-sexual experiences that occur before these things actually take place that we need to recognize, we need to understand the danger, we need to realize what's going on that precedes it. And not all these things are bad. Oftentimes they're good because they help us to, to uh, control and to direct the, the God-given drives and urges that he's given us. And so pre-sexual experiences aren't always bad. What happens in the process can become bad and it can become disastrous. And that's why we need to understand, and what it boils down to is there are certain words that are used in the Bible that we need to have a good understanding of what they mean. The roots of sexual sin boil down to two, two, well, there are two Greek words, and we get a lot of English words from it, but the first word is sensuality. 
Sensuality. As you read through your Bible and you see the word sensuality, <clears throat> there's th- this particular word is used, and it's defined this way. Vine's Expository Dictionary refers to sensuality like this. It denotes an excess, an excess, absence of restraint, shameless conduct. I like that excess. What it's saying is we've gone too far. You've gone too far. And isn't it fascinating when you think about the English phrases that we get? We, we say things like this. Did you go all the way? Did you go too far? Did you cross the line? Interesting, isn't it? And the biblical definition is that's exactly what God's referring to. It's an excess. It means you've gone further than God allows us to go. We've crossed the line. It's interesting we talk to someone who's caught up in homosexual behavior. You ask them a question, when did you cross that line? What caused you to cross the line? You talk to somebody who's having an affair. What, when did you cross the line? See, there's always things that go on ahead of time that lead up to crossing the line. So the Bible refers to those words as sensuality. Let me give you a, a couple of illustrations of how it's used. In Mark chapter 7, we read this. For from within, Jesus said, Mark 7, 21 through 22, he says, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, malice, deceit, lewdness, and that's our word, sensuality, sensuality, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. You see, God, Jesus was warning, saying, you know what, it's from within, it's from the heart of men. And what we need to understand, and we'll get into detail next week, is that if a person has not come to faith in Christ, they are still living according to the Bible in what God says they live in, in the flesh because their spirit is not alive, then this demonstrates to the world that we live in, it demonstrates to that person that according to the objective standard or measurement of God, that they are dead in their sins, and that's why they live the life that they live. See, and what's sad about how we try to uh, confront uh, sin in our culture is that we deal with the symptom and we don't get to the root problem. To tell you know, someone who's not a believer that they shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, you can, you can rationalize with them all that you want about the dangers of uh, sexually transmitted disease, the danger of unwanted pregnancy, all those type of things. But you know what? But they are still dead in their sin and they're still on a fat... A short track, fast pace to hell because they haven't been born again or come alive spiritually. We'll get into that in great detail next week because it is the key to understanding how to overcome behavior, behavioral patterns or habits that are wrong before God. But Jesus warned, you know what, this is how we know whether a person's really of God or not. This is how you know whether a person is born of God, how they live their life from, the, from within, out of hearts men's come these things. Sin These thoughts become visible actions. We recognize sin in our lives and in the lives of other people by asking the question, are you doing any of these things? He goes on in Galatians 5.19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and there's another translation of the same word, sensuality, impurity, and debauchery. You know, as we go through this, it becomes real important, and I'm going to explain to you why you need to understand what these words mean. Because all of these things are referring to the same thing, the problem of sensuality. This is what the the dictionary uh, defines as sensuality. Relating to or consisting in the gratification of the senses. Means, A, if it feels good, we're going to do it, right? Or the indulgence of the flesh or appetite. 
Here's, here's, oftentimes you run into people who say things like this. It's a physical desire. Sex is nothing more than a physical desire. It's no different than eating or drinking. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that God calls it sin. That's what the big deal is. And it's a very big deal. Another word that's used, or English words that we get, and it comes from one Greek word, are the words lusts, passions, desires, or craving. So depending on your translation and what you read, you'll find these words represent a different idea as far as uh, sexual behavior. And that's this. 2 Timothy 2.22, we read this. Flee the evil desires of youth. See, God's saying, flee the evil desires of youth. And what he's talking about are youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires or lusts which wage war against your soul. He's saying, flee this stuff, abstain from it, and if you want any biblical references on abstinence, the whole abstinence program, there's one right there. Abstain. Don't do it. 1 Thessalonians 4 said the same thing. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What? That you abstain from this type of sexual behavior. Abstinence is the only true safe sex message that corresponds with the message of God found in the Word of God. Abstain from it. 1 John 2.16 For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. We need to have a good understanding of these words because the problem is that we can read over these and say, but, but I don't understand what the word sensuality means. Therefore, I am going to pretend I don't understand what God's trying to say to me. No, the Bible is very clear. Now, once we understand these words, it lays a foundation for the next thing that I want to talk about. And there are some things that many of us would call gray areas of sexual behavior. What about the gray areas of sexual behavior? That's a very good question. We know what the Bible says, but see, the problem with the gray areas is that it applies to really how we live our lives. And the first gray area is, well, you know what? What about our thoughts? What about our thoughts? The Bible gives great insight, and you need to understand something. God is saying, don't think about this. But he warns us about some things. And in fact, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. And I'll give you a good illustration of our thought life. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. The battle for sexual purity always begins in our minds. Because what you think about, listen to me, what you think about is ultimately what you're going to do. What we think about is ultimately what we are going to do. And I'll guarantee you this, as your thought life intensifies, the matter of timing becomes shorter and shorter. As that thought begins to dominate your life, it's not long before you take that step. Understand this. You got a person who's thinking about having having an affair, committing adultery. Their thought life begins to intensify. They think more and more about it. They think more and more about the idea of it. Jesus warns in Matthew 5, 27, 28, this is what happens. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you 
that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, the problem is Jesus said, you know what, you've already heard that you're not supposed to do this, but I'm going to give you a little more insight as to what leads up to the problem. The problem is, is that you're thinking about it. He says that everyone, but I say to you that everyone who looks, now understand what he's talking about. The word looks is in the, is in the present tense. It means looks and continually looks. Not has looked or looked at a, a time and past. It means looks. Looking presently, currently. Here's a flag that God sends up, just like that siren that went off in the background. The alarm goes on, the siren goes up, off, the flags go up, and God says this, the Spirit of God, as you're listening to the words of the Word of God, He says this, you know what? Just like you're looking at so-and-so. Just like you're looking at so-and-so. Just like you're thinking. And God says, you know what? For whoever looks continually on a woman, a specific person, now it gets even more practical because the Spirit of God says, you know what? Just like you look at fill in the name. Just like you're looking at her. You got a problem, buddy. You got a problem, lady. Just like you're looking at him. Just like you're thinking about him. Well, yeah, what's wrong with thinking about somebody? Well, you know what? Thinking's not the problem. The problem is you're thinking about having sex with them. Because it goes on to say, you know what? Has already committed oh, to lust for her, to lust for her. You're not thinking about what a great secretary she is, not what a great job she does. Well, should she be promoted? Should we give her a raise? You're thinking about, hey, you know what? I'm thinking about having sex with her. I'm thinking about jumping in the sack with her. I'm thinking about having sex with him. See, and what Jesus said is, he said, you know what? You've already committed adultery in your heart. So some of you are going, well, if I already did it, might as well follow through with it. That's how we think. Man, we are amazing. You know, I've talked to guys that said that. Well, you know, the Bible says I already did it because I was thinking about it. I might as well go ahead and do it. Wrong. Wrong. Why? Because just because you were thinking about it, that means you've got a problem before God in your thought life. You need to deal with that. But so far, it only involves you. Now, when you follow through and you end up doing it, now you involve another person. Now there's two people involved. And now you've got all kinds of problems that you've got to deal with. You see, thinking about it's one thing, and following through and doing it's a whole other thing. And what's wonderful about it is God says, listen, please control your thought life. You know what? Do you ever notice? Think about this. Do you ever notice how you can be sitting in church and have some unbelievably nasty thought come into your head? Huh? How many? Raise your hand. If you, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> but think about it. I mean, really, think about this. Isn't that true? I mean... All right, now, you, you can't say anything because, you know, everyone sitting next to you is going to be really worried about you. But, but it's, like, it's like, it's okay because, you know, they're all thinking the same thing. The only thing is they're more hypocritical than you are. So you're like one step ahead of them. But anyway, that's another issue. But, you, you ever, I mean, did you ever, like, you go, man, where'd that come from? What in the world? And it's like, oh. And, and you go, Lord, where, what? It's like, come, it came out of left field. You get this thought, and it's like, oh, it's a nasty thought. See, but you know what? You can't control the thoughts that come into your mind. But you can control what you do with them once they're there. See, and that's what we've got to deal with. And uh, let me give you a story illustrated. And we're, we're going to talk about a couple more things next week. But I want to share with you some things that are real practical and I want you to think about it. Number one, think about our thought life. Number two, we'll talk about what we look at. Number three, I want to give you some insight from the Word of God on the problem of 
um, let's see, you can't really say masturbation in church because people would go nuts. But, um, so we'll, we'll call it sexual self-stimulation. <laughs> I mean, think about it. When, when were you ever at church where anyone ever addressed the subject from a biblical point of view? And what's funny is everybody knows about it. No one wants to talk about it. And so come back next week. We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about dating. If you're single, you got some single people in your family and they're dating, they're going through all that. Well, there's some good guidelines as far as the Bible gives as far as dating. But let's just go back to the thought thing. We'll, we'll talk about that and how, practically speaking, that we can lay out a, a game plan to remain uh, morally pure before God because it's probably the greatest hindrance to the effective witness of the world that we live in when Christians begin to adopt sexual behavior that's no different than the rest of the world that we live in. God's not mocked by that, and he can't use us to be effective ministers of righteousness in the world we live in, so we'll get our acts cleaned up before God. So anyway, we're going to talk about all those things. But let me just share this story with you about our thought life. Okay? There, there's a friend of mine that, um, that I met several years ago, and you know, just to show you where, where God has brought him from. I had been talking to him and spending time with him, and uh, God really impressed my heart to go over and meet with him and to just go out lunch, to lunch with him and spend some time with him. I didn't know why, but God does that, and you just kind of follow through, and then you kind of you go through this adventurous situation of figuring out what's going on. So I went over to meet him, and I knocked on the door, and this young gal answered the door half, half, un, half unclothed, and uh, she was living with him at the time. And uh, I said, hey, you got time for lunch? And he gave me this sheepish look on his face like, like, did you notice that? Well, I, you know, what, am I dead? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. Um, <laughs> but I definitely, I'm learning to control my thoughts that I had about the whole thing after, after we were leaving. So we go and we drive away and, uh, you know, make a long story short, God has done miraculous things in his life. And uh, the situation he was in, he got out of it. He, he trusted the Lord. He, he, he's obedient in his walk with the Lord. Got out of that relationship and ended up God bringing a wonderful Christian gal into his life. They've been married. That He came to visit the other day. I said, hey, how's marriage? He goes, man, you know what? It's unbelievable what God protected me from. And I just want to praise him. I want to tell you that marriage is, has exceeded my wildest expectations about what God can do. And he just praises God what he brought him out of. But the point is... This is, and this is, we had this conversation the night before. Well, he had to go and do something. He was going to be on a TV show, and uh, we had to do some errands. So we run, and we go to Home Depot. So we're walking out of Home Depot. And as we're walking out of Home Depot, this gal walks by us. And she's, like, just gorgeous. And I keep walking. And he's walking. <laughs> well, now, you know, I didn't flee because I wasn't doing anything, but I just keep on walking. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and he's walking behind me. And he goes like this. Now, you can't even tell me that you didn't notice that. <laughs> you can't tell me that. I said, I noticed it. He goes, now, because we were just having this conversation about, you know, needing to control our thoughts. He goes, now, see, like a few years ago, this is what I was thinking. And he explained to me what he was thinking. And he got really descriptive about what he was thinking. <laughs> and we're walking out, you know, we're carrying this stuff. And he's, he's explaining this to me. And he's going, now, is that the kind of thing you're talking about that I need to get better control over? <laughs> and I went, exactly. 
That's exactly it. See, that's the whole message. That's what God's trying to say. It's take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what Paul says. Whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is good repute, let your mind dwell on these things. That means as soon as that thought enters your mind, you ask God, forgive me for this. And don't even allow me to consider anything else beyond this point. But God, I know what your word says about sexual behavior. I know what I should be thinking in my thought life. I can't be thinking about lusting after this person. I can't be thinking about what's under that blouse or what's, you know, what's under this guy's jeans or whatever it is. I can't think about stuff like that. I can't even give it a second thought because i got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And you know what that's called? That's called growing in your faith. That's called growing up. That's called maturing. Can you control every thought that comes into your mind? No. God doesn't even hold you accountable for it. But he controls every thought that you have in your mind that you continue to keep in your mind and where it goes from there is a matter of what you want to do in your walk with the Lord. You're single and you're dating and you're thinking about getting in the sack. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Hey, buddy, you're having a problem time in your marriage and you're thinking about jumping in the sack with some other woman that you know wherever you've met her and you're continually thinking about it. I'm telling you right now, you ask God to forgive you for what you're thinking. You trust Him. You trust His Word. And you go and you make things right at home. You spend the same time, energy, effort. You think about your wife in the same ways you're thinking about somebody else. And you know what? She'll start turning you on again. And you know what? When you show her some affection, maybe she'll respond to you. If you buy her the same gifts you're buying the gal at the office, maybe she'd be excited about you too. Because if you think about it, that's what you did to date her, and that's how she ended up marrying you. Duh. Hello. Hello. Anybody home? You see how practical and how relevant all of this is? This is some real stuff. And it's real issues and it deals with real people's lives. And we need to understand it. We need to control what we think and our thoughts need to be pleasing before God. Next week we get into some more very practical issues. Please be here to see what God has to say so you've got answers for the world that we live in that are trying to point people down a direction that's going to destroy their lives. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to look into your word. God, we just, there's so much here and it's so relevant that it's important we just take the time to listen to what you have to say. God, we're bombarded with arguments and information and philosophies that are in direct opposition to everything that you say. And God, even though we can illustrate it by story after story of why your truth is accurate, why it's relevant, and God, why it is truth. Then when the final analysis, it just boils down to, God, we just need to trust you. We don't always understand it, and there aren't always good illustrations in every area of life that we know of personally to help us to realize how wonderful you are and what you protect us from. But in the final analysis, God, may we become men and women who, when everything's said and done, simply puts our faith and trust in you. God, we just thank you for that and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Steve Farrar.